0: Hi, I'm Joseph Marx, and this is EconoPolitics, the official podcast of the Economics and Politics section of LASA. Each week, we engage with section members and professional colleagues working in the region and dealing with many of the same issues that we follow. Our aim is to promote greater dialogue and creative synergy among all. Welcome to today's show. Our guest today is Mark Weisbrot economist, co-founder, and co-director of CEPR, the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C. CEPR was founded in 1999 to promote democratic debate through professional research and public education. Mark is also the author of Failed, What the Experts Got Wrong About the Global Economy, Oxford versus 2015. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, as you know, econopolitics like CEPR aims to broaden the dialogue between uh, academics and practitioners. So it's great to have someone who works as an independent researcher outside of academia on the show. There's a lot to cover, but perhaps we should begin by asking you to introduce CEPER in your own words to our listeners in the region who may be unfamiliar with your organization.
1: Sure, well, as you mentioned, you know, CEPER. is involved in public education. We do uh, professional research uh, papers. We do a lot, uh, write a lot for the media, focusing more on the mainstream media. In fact, uh, quite a bit, you know, we were, I guess, became most known in the major media in the US because uh, my co-founder and co-director, Dean Bayer, was the first and practically the only economist to uh, correctly analyzed both the two biggest asset bubbles in the history of the United States, first the stock market, and then the real estate bubble. And of course, he turned out to be right about both of those at a time when nobody was uh, talking about them. And, and then, uh, so so that's our work on the you know that's just one example of our work on the United States economy, which is about half our work, and the other half is international. And I guess uh, there were big changes in the 21st century, as you know, in, in Latin America. And so we took an increasing interest in that and also in the United States role. And we, we did many uh, papers on various economies, a lot of economic analysis, but also uh, it inevitably, as in the U.S., uh, spills over into the politics as well.
0: Um, in, in terms of... Um of size and uh, over the years, Heper has grown. Uh, you've got fellows, um, different departments. So how would you describe that?
1: Well, we're a lot bigger than when we started out. I think our budget was something like $80,000 <laughs> and back in uh, 99. And so we've been growing and the, uh, yeah, we have a number of research uh, fellows in addition to our regular staff, um, we have an advisory board which includes two uh, Nobel Prize Nobel laureate uh, economists, and uh, so our you know our general uh, breadth of our work and our uh, our I would say our influence has increased
0: over the years. Great. Great, let's move on to Brazil. How do you view recent developments in Brazil regarding the political and judicial situation, um, democracy in general in Brazil? Well, that's a big question, but we have
1: limited time. So I would say most importantly, Lula is back. He's, uh, you know, those uh, three uh, cases were thrown out. You know, I was the first actually to write in the New York Times about uh, louis case and show that in, this was three years ago, January of 2018. And I argued uh, that they didn't have a case uh, against him and they, you know, and this was mainly to prevent him from running uh, for president. And, you know, all I did at the time was uh, and nobody had really done this in the U.S. major media. They, I went through the 238-page uh, sentencing uh, document of Judge Morrow, and it was all there. Uh, they had nothing on him. <laughs> you know, they they tried to get him for uh, this uh, alleged crime was that he received a bribe, uh, an apartment that he never rented, uh, barely. I don't think he even set foot in it. <laughs> and he didn't own it. He didn't have the title to it. And so there was really no crime there. Uh, and and uh, I mean, there was no evidence of a crime, I should say. And in Dilma's case, she was impeached without an actual crime. It was for an accounting uh, maneuver that is done all the time by prior presidents and governors and also is quite common in the United States. And so uh, this was uh, really two coups that took place and now it's, it's recognized Because, as you can see, as you mentioned the, uh, or I mentioned the decision uh, to throw out these three uh, cases against Lula, and now he can, you know, he spent 500 days in in jail uh, unjustly, uh, again to prevent him uh, from running for president. You know, they even kept him from speaking, which they don't even do with, you know, like a lot of like gang members. You know, he couldn't speak to the media; they restricted it. And uh, so it was so clearly political persecution. And now that is becoming evident. I think most, well, it was already, it was always evident, but now the major media, it's evident to uh, there, it's evident there as well. And I think that, uh, you know, one of the things more recently that has been established. And I talked about it at, uh, you know, again, three years ago, but then there was more, ev- a lot more evidence came out that Judge Moro, uh, the judge who uh, oversaw these operations uh, against Lula and Dilma and the Workers' Party, that he actually collaborated with the prosecution uh, to, in, in many ways, to both uh, politically, judicially, in terms of the prosecution, everything And so uh, that has so he his whole uh, the politicized investigation has been uh, discredited, and uh, the one part that hasn't come out, which is always the hardest part in the U.S., is the U.S. role in it. And you did have thirteen members of Congress um, wrote a letter uh, to uh, uh, they wrote a letter a public letter. Uh, to the U.S. government, you know, questioning uh, the role of the Department of Justice in this uh, crime. And I think this was uh, definitely uh, part of what they were doing. The United States was against the PT, uh Workers' Party, and um, was trying to
0: uh, get rid of that government. Great. Um, the main preoccupation of CEPR is on challenges to democracy throughout the region um, and so moving on to ecuador um, perhaps you can explain to us how you view what what is the importance of what's happening in ecuador currently well
1: you know this goes to the question of how you can have uh, fair elections can you have them in latin america and we can get more into that you know in terms of the overview but i think you know, this is a, 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 a problem. They tried to keep, first, you know, they, well, there was all this uh, persecution of the Correistas, the people who had supported uh, Rafael Correa, who was uh, president from 2007 to 2017 and, uh, you know, had a, a social democratic government and it was very popular because it improved living standards enormously and reduced income inequality and poverty. And so they, uh, the current government um, tried everything, all kinds of illegal moves to keep his uh, people who had supported him, including him. Well, of course, they have all this, uh, these charges against him Uh, you know, to keep them off the the ballot. And, you know, just to give you one thing, because you don't hear much about this, it's quite amazing for four years has been going on, this political persecution, and you hear almost nothing in the US media. And I'm just going to quote from a letter from 13 members of the US uh, Congress, just two months ago, okay, Uh, which summed up the you know anti-democratic governance of the current government of Lenin Moreno, and you know it was much worse than his most important ally, who was Donald Trump. And here's what they said in the letter: Over the last few years, President Moreno and his allies have jailed and persecuted opponents, violently re- repressed protests, and engaged in dubious maneuvers to try to prevent opposition leaders from participating in the country's February, 2021 elections. And that's quite incredible that you, you know I would bet that, you know, most of your listeners saw almost nothing about that in the U.S. and even most of the hemispheric uh, media. And again, this is from 13 members of the U.S. Congress who they don't specialize in Ecuador, but th- it came to their attention and they wrote about it. And so uh, I think this is really important. They were unable to keep uh, the opposition off the ballot. And so uh, what happened in the first round of the election on uh, February 7th, I think it was, the um, is Andres Arraus who was uh, originally gonna run with, Correa as his vice president, but they knocked him off, they knocked Correa off the ballot. So he ran as, uh, uh, he ran for president anyway, and he came in first with uh, 32% of the vote. And then there were two candidates that were very close for the second place, but it is nonetheless clear that Guillermo Lasso, who had run before, he's a banker and businessman, conservative, uh, he came in uh, with uh, uh, 20 point something uh, percent of the vote, and um, the and uh, um, Yaku Perez uh, came in, he's an indigenous lawyer and activist, he came in with uh, 0. 0.37 percentage uh, points less. But the result was very clear and, uh, you know, there was no real doubt about it. And the electoral commission uh, just decided, I think yesterday uh, by a five to zero vote that uh, the second place and goes to the second round is going to be uh, between Lasso uh, in second place and Andres in in first place Uh, and, but here's, here's the part that I think, you know, is important in terms of democracy, is that Yacou Peres has been claiming fraud. And it's very similar to what happened in Bolivia uh, last year in their October 19th election because uh, you know, uh, Peres was ahead for a while because areas that were more sympathetic to him were being processed uh, before the ones that were more sympathetic to Lasso and you could tell, and everybody knew <laughs> that the vote was going to uh, shift when uh, Quito and Guayaquil uh, came in and the other areas. And uh, so he he developed this narrative of fraud, and uh, convinced a lot of his followers, and uh, tried to do the same thing they did in, in Bolivia to discredit the election. And he's still doing that, you know. Uh, he's still claiming that there was fraud in in the election. And, uh, and so this is a real problem, because this becomes, and you know, when we talk about Bolivia, I'll I'll, I'll show that example, that was the basis on which the military overthrew the uh, government in December of last year, the democratically elected uh, government of Bolivia. And, Nobody, by the way, disputes that that was a democratically elected government because he was elected in 2014, and there were Evo uh, Morales, and there was no uh, dispute about that. And he still had several months left in his term, and so uh, that was that was the whole basis of that overthrow was simply the false allegations of fraud. So this was a you know we uh, I wrote about this because this this looked like another repeat of this and this. Is an example. These are examples of the terrible problem that we have uh, with democratic elections in Latin America, and that is, especially when the United States uh, takes a side, which it, it has repeatedly uh, in the last, uh, you know, in the, in the last uh, decade and more, last you know, fifteen years at least. Uh, you have a problem that uh, it's very difficult for people to have legitimate elections uh, because they get uh, challenged by very powerful forces and and too often the media goes along with it, most of the media.
0: Right, Um, in the past, you mentioned uh, US involvement uh, when speaking about Brazil, I wonder in the case of Ecuador and Bolivia, um, if you want to comment on the involvement, say, of regional or multilateral organizations, for example, yes. in the Bolivian case? Yeah.
1: That's a great question, because this is an example of how the United States exerts influence. And the Bolivia case was most striking. And this was, you know, this is another reason why I think that uh, people who are um, interested in these things in the United States should play, have to pay close attention because this was a coup. This coup in Bolivia was a U.S. coup. The Trump administration very openly and strongly uh, supported it. And it was done uh, through and led by the Organization of American States uh, under Almagro, the Secretary General. And it was done. They they led it because the the day after the uh, October election, uh, they put out a press release saying that there was fraud, and uh, or, or very strongly implying they didn't actually say it, as uh, you know as a, as explicitly, but they, they they said it for the world, and um, and that became the narrative that was used to support a military coup as the New York Times would report, uh, you know, eight months later, uh, it the OAS uh, allegations, which they finally reported after eight months uh, were uh, apparently not true, <laughs> were actually not true. Um, they, you know, that it changed the history of the country is what they said. And uh, unfortunately, uh, there was almost nothing in the media challenging, uh, in the major media, either in Bolivia or in the United States or the international press that challenged the uh, OAS narrative that Evo Morales had stolen uh, the election. And then they put out more reports because their original claims were not believable at all. And they tried to uh, come up with other uh, arguments that the, the election was uh, stolen. And again, they use the optics, this narrative that it would because the vote count uh, changed and this wasn't even the real vote count it was a preliminary vote count. It didn't count for anything, but they used it. There was an interruption and the vote count uh, sh- started to shift towards uh, Morales and his party. And they, so they used that to claim that there was some kind of fraud. It's very interesting. I mean, the complete double standard you have, you know, when Trump did exactly the same thing here and all of the media just said it was nonsense because he had no evidence. This was even worse, both Bolivia and Ecuador because not only did they have no evidence but there was enormous evidence that they were wrong. In other words, all you really needed was eighth grade arithmetic to see especially in the case of Bolivia, uh, but Ecuador too that's all you needed was to see that these claims were false. And in fact, there was a letter uh, published by 133 uh, economists and statisticians um, in December, I think it was uh, of 2019 following the Bolivian election, saying, you know, the OAS really has the answer for this. It's very obvious. That's how obvious it was. Anybody who looked at the numbers could see that the OAS claim was false, but again, because it was just repeated over and over again in all the media, and it had, uh, you know, powerful forces—white supremacist forces actually—that coup was really led by white supremacists, and you know, they, uh, um, you know, it was Bolivia's first indigenous uh, president, and they massacred, uh, you know. Uh, at least a couple dozen indigenous people. And that, that is carefully documented in a report from the uh, Harvard uh, Law School uh, International Human Rights Clinic. And so this is what happened. And it shows you uh, how the kind of thing that can happen when, again, you have uh, powerful uh, elites, in these countries who don't want to accept uh, the results of democratic elections and they have a backing from the United States. And of course there were so many examples. I mean, there was a coup in Honduras in 2009 where you know Hillary Clinton acknowledged in her memoirs that she made sure that the democratically elected uh, president couldn't come back to the country. And so this is uh, this is a lot of what we uh, got involved in, in, in writing about, because it's, it was so, uh, it got so little attention.
0: Yeah. On, on the other extreme, we've got uh, Venezuela. And uh, I wonder if you have any thoughts um, or any practical suggestions regarding next steps regarding that situation. How, where do we go from there? We have a new, a new administration in Washington. Any hope of somehow um, uh, making some significant changes to improve the lot of the Venezuelan people? Yeah, well, I hope so. I mean, I think it'll come
1: from Congress. You know, I focus a lot. We focus a lot on Congress because that's the place where you can actually uh, change something. The executive, so far, you know, uh, Biden's done very well on the domestic front here. But on foreign policy, and in Latin America in particular, uh, he's really continuing, the, the so far, the policies of the Trump administration, including in, uh, in, in Venezuela, where he's continuing the sanctions. In fact, just uh, last week or so, the administration had to issue an executive order. They uh, didn't have to, but they did uh they issued an executive order continuing the to continue the trump uh, sanctions against venezuela and in order to continue the sanctions they're required by law to declare and they did in this white house statement which is on the web that venezuela presents an unusual and extraordinary threat to the national security of the United States, which is something that you know nobody I know <laughs> would wanna stand up on TV and defend. And they're lucky that journalists don't ask them about that. <laughs> but uh, this is what we're talking about. And this is, I'm not gonna go into you know Venezuela uh, in detail because you don't have time here anyway, but the one thing everybody should know is that these sanctions are an actual crime. You know, it's only a technicality that prevents it from being uh, a a crime under the Geneva Convention. The Geneva Convention has very explicit um, language against, um, and so does the Hague Convention, which we also signed, against collective punishment. And everybody knows that's what these sanctions are. In fact, uh, Pompeo, uh, pretty much admitted it in public. And he did the same for Iran, that the purpose of these sanctions is to harm uh, the civilian uh, population so that they rise up against uh, the government. So this is a a real crime. And uh, the the technicality is that prevents it from being a crime under the Geneva Convention is that that only applies if there's a war going on. But it should be obvious that something that's a, a, a war are shooting at each other is also a crime if you do it when there isn't uh, officially a war. And so, uh, you know, Jeffrey Sachs and I did a, a paper, I think it was 2019, uh, that uh, showed that t- tens of thousands of people had already been killed uh, by the sanctions that were first uh, implemented in uh, 2017. And so this is, you know, it's a very serious crime. And there is legislation, there was legislation proposed last year in Congress and it's coming back to try and uh, to, to say, to actually make it law uh, that the, uh, the Congress would have to give approval that it couldn't just be done if you're going to do these financial sanctions uh, that target whole countries and can destroy whole economies and you know kill people on a mass scale like this, that this would have to be approved by Congress. It's, it's kind of analogous to the 1973 War Powers Act, which was invoked, uh, and we were very heavily involved in that too, which was invoked to uh, uh, by both houses of Congress to order the president to get out of the war in uh, in Yemen. And Biden has uh, pledged to do that, actually, because Trump just ignored the law. And um, and we'll see if he does that.
0: Uh, Mark, in, in the five years since the publication of your book, uh, much seems to have changed on the political front in the region, perhaps less so on the economic front. How do you view? Um, your your um, worldview towards the region in 2015 as compared to today on both the political and economic front in the region?
1: Well, that's a big uh, question. I think the economic front did change a lot as well. Um, what you had in the first decade of the 21st century and that's why I wrote that, that was one chapter in the, in the book. Um, I think the big change was that Independent, I say independent because they were more independent than the United States than ever before. Independent, and they were they were left of center, center, but it didn't have to be to have this independence. But so it happened that the the left of center uh, political forces in the region led this effort. Uh, there, they Latin America became more independent and elected more left of center governments than ever in its 500 years it was an enormous in fact uh during that first decade uh reach a point where the majority of latin america was actually living under these uh left of uh center elected governments and you know to me this really shows in a lot of ways it reflects horribly on uh the um the kind of uh I don't know how the foreign policy establishment in the United States that they didn't see this as a, a welcome development, but in fact saw it as a terrible thing that had to be for the most part. Um, and uh, because this is one of, this is probably the only time, possibly the only time in the history of the world where you had uh, so much uh, uh, progressive social change economic change, especially, and poverty was reduced during that period from 2003 to 2013, uh, from 44 to 28% in Latin America. And that's why the, you know, official uh, figures. And, uh, the, uh, and it had increased for two decades before that. You had the worst economic failure in Latin American history from 1980 to 2000. And so, This was a huge thing and it took place by the ballot box. You know, you've had massive economic changes. You know, China pulled 800 million people out of poverty but it wasn't uh, done through the ballot box, okay? So anybody who cares about peaceful, positive change should have seen that first uh, decade as a a really historic uh, development and yet, all the forces of the foreign policy establishment here in the government were marshaled against these governments. And this, I won't have time to go into the details, but in Argentina, Brazil, Venezuela, Honduras, Bolivia, Ecuador, Paraguay, Mexico, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Haiti. You know, in some of these countries, the US actually uh, participated in in actual coups, you know? And uh, yeah, Haiti, I mean, uh, uh, one of the poorest countries in the hemisphere. And they overthrew the government in 2004 and they did it in broad daylight. But not only there, they were involved in the coup in Paraguay and of course in Bolivia and Honduras. And they've been trying to overthrow uh, the governments of uh, Venezuela and the Carol- And in the elections they intervened and they intervened in Argentina, you know, uh, to worsen their balance of payments problems. Uh, by cutting off their access to credit, and uh, so, uh, this is, uh, so this is so this is a huge thing. So that's the reversal that took place. I'm not going to blame it all on the U.S. First of all, I've written about the you know economic mistakes that various uh, governments have made, and uh, that weakened them uh, in some cases, um, but and the U.S. role because this is where I live. And uh, this is the thing that we can uh, do something about if you don't live in any of these countries, you're you're not a citizen there. The main thing you can do is to to help prevent the harm that the United States and its allies are causing. So that was the big thing. They got rid of uh, a bunch of these left governments and weakened others. And, uh, and so the struggle now is, of course, uh, to, for uh, progressive forces in those countries to reestablish uh, democracy for the most part.
0: Great, we're quickly running out of time, unfortunately, but I wouldn't wanna let you leave without asking for personal recommendations that you may have uh, in all your travels, either throughout the region or where you're based in in DC. Uh, we hope to put together a, a small travel guide for people who are traveling in the future, either on research or on vacation. So Mark, what would you... Um, Give us one or two um, recommendations of your favorite spots. Well,
1: uh, yeah, that's gonna that's a tough thing right now because you don't even know what's open. <laughs> COVID, so but I would say uh, you know in the uh, the Washington D.C. metropolitan area where I've been living, uh, I think you have a lot of natural beauty. You have the 180. Miles of the CNO Canal, and the great thing about it here is, if you like to bike, you can. You don't even need a car to go to these places. You have Rock Creek Park. You have um, the uh, just a lot of green open areas. The Billy Goat Trails, they're called. Those are some of the places that I really appreciate uh, around here.
0: Well, that's great. I never heard of the Billy Goat Trail. Anyhow, thank you, Mark, very much. Keep up the good work, and we look forward to doing more with CEPR in the future. Join us again next time when we will be talking with the Inter-American Development Bank regarding their recent review of the macroeconomic situation in Latin America. As always, thanks to my colleagues, Gabriel Santos and Fabricio Chagas Bastos. Until then, stay well, stay safe.